Welcome to another anointed message from Faith Legacy Believers Church Gold Coast. We believe that your faith will grow. You will be inspired and empowered to become the overcomer you were born to be. Enjoy. So we've been in a series on the life of David and what it looks like to have our faith form. This is a series that's meant to ask questions and answer questions and explore the journey of how do I become what I'm supposed to become and why am I falling short of what I feel like I should be? And there was this picture in my head of where I would be at this point in my life. And then there's this picture of where I actually am at this point in my life. And the gap is quite daunting. I actually feel a, a bit strange about how short it is or how long it is or what that journey has looked like. And so I wanted to put this series together uh, to, to help us with this. And in the first session, we talked about how everything starts with anointing. And, and, and I was quite upfront about how I started not to like the word because of what the word became. The word anointing started out for special people and then Jesus made it about everybody, everywhere, whoever is breathing air and wanting to fulfill their potential. But then if the church then takes that word and creates a subset of anointed ones and not anointed ones, it's just a step back in the wrong direction. Anointing is any time God has trusted you with his breath today. Anything that God has trusted you with 24-hour gift of his breath. And anointing is simply a matter of acknowledging the breath and choosing to hallow the name and never profane the name. Hallowing the name has everything to do with a commitment and an intention to live to the fullest, to use God's breath today to accomplish what God has called us uh, to do. Profaning the name is the opposite of that. It could be it's not necessarily doing wrong things. It just could be doing nothing, using God's breath to sit around doing nothing. So we talked about how anointing has to be stewarded, never squandered, and that comes from a position of hallowing the name, to live intentionally to the full and to repent along the way. And then the second session, we talked about preparedness or equipping and how what we hallow in secret is what we manifest in public. Every battle we win in public at some point was won in private. And every battle we lose in private at some point, we will lose in public. It comes down to living intentionally, building the life you want. That living on accident it just means failure is just going to be a part of your life. There's, a, there's an old rabbinical teaching. It'll be very familiar to you as soon as I mention it. Jesus talks about it as well. It's called the broad road and the narrow way. Jesus made that teaching famous, but that teaching existed before Jesus. And by the way, it has nothing to do with heaven or hell, and not in that context. Um, Jesus isn't mentioning heaven or hell in that, in, in that teaching, and nor is it about heaven or hell. It's an ancient rabbinical teaching about people who live with intention and people who live on accident. And what Jesus is saying is, is that very few people live with the intention necessary to get where they're wanting to go. Most people just try to let life come to them, and what ends up happening is that they destroy their life. Why? Because you don't have to intend to fail. You just have to have no intention to win, and failure will be uh, just be a normal part of your life. It's sort of like this. Every yes we say requires a thousand no's, and the difference between a mature no and an immature no is if, if, if you're a good, just a basically good person, you've wondered that. You said, I need to say no to this, but how do 
I know if I'm being selfish in my no or if I'm being mature in my no? Here's the simplest way to know that. Every mature no is a no that is automatically attached to a yes. I have to say no to that because I've said yes to this. I have said yes to being a good financial steward, so I have to say no to wasteful spending. I have said yes to this level of fitness, so I have to say no to your invitation to go to the donut shop for the fourth time this week. I have said yes to this, so I have to say no to that. I've said yes to being a person of forgiveness, so I have to say no to grudges, right? So the no in and of itself is never powerful enough without the yes behind it. That was the entire second session in a minute and a half there. Tonight I want to talk about refining, the preparing, the, the process by which we go through. For most people, I would say for everybody or for somebody that just isn't paying attention, for most people, your process to be formed is not this very smooth, not bumpy ride. It's not this linear sort of transactional thing. Well, if you do this, God automatically is committed to do that. That just doesn't work over time. At some point, you're going to do X and Y is going to happen, right? And you're going to be like, wait a minute, if I do X, X squared is supposed to happen. But you do X and life throws you Y, right? And at some point, that's going to happen to everybody. And here's the problem. We look at even characters in scripture and their process is less than obvious. You sort of see the end result or their process is alluded to like Paul. I spent 14 years learning in Arabia before I ever, well, what was that like? 14 years, that's a long time. And what were you facing along the way? And what questions were you asking? And what sort of bumps in the road did you hit? We just don't see it. David's a good example. We're going to look at his life. It takes about eight minutes to read David's entire story from anointed by Samuel to king of Israel. About eight minutes. But when you look at the whole process, it was eight years of his life. And sometimes the bumps just get sort of read over. So I want to start this by talking about something that's very important to our faith formation, and that is lament. That along the way, we will have lament. It was very important in scripture. Heck, there's an entire book dedicated to the process of lamenting. It's called Lamentations. And here's the thing. The word lament in Hebrew is the word how, H-O-W, question mark. The word lament is a question, how, never, why. So, in the wisdom tradition, you never paralyze yourself by asking why. You free yourself by coming up with ways and rituals to express how. This is where I think in the Western world we fall very short. Most Western cultures do not have a ritual to express how something happening without any expectation of an explanation as to why something happens. Western people want to know why something happens. And then when we're faced with other people suffering, we feel the pressure to explain to them why it's happening to them. And more importantly, why and what you must do to get out of that situation. Whereas in Eastern cultures like Jesus... They don't necessarily have to express why. 
they do have to express how. Even in deep grief, the Jews had this thing called sitting shiva. And sitting shiva was if somebody died, deep grief. You don't go around the people who've just lost somebody and try to explore why that person died. Why is that kid sick? Why is that loved one doing this? Why? You never would do that because, not because it's right or wrong, it's because it's largely useless. So what they did is they came up with a ritual to to free people to express how. In the Jewish culture, it's called sitting Shiva. In sitting Shiva, if someone dies, the friends would paint their faces with ashes and sit around them. And here was the rule. You could not speak unless you were spoken to. Brilliant. It takes all the pressure off you to give answers to unanswerable things. It takes all the pressure on them to have to entertain. You just simply gave the gift of your presence to that person and you help them express how instead of asking why? So in our refining process, as our faith is formed, we're going to hit bumps and everything in us is going to want to scream, why is this happening? But in the wisdom literature, you never free yourself by asking why. You free yourself by expressing how. Because here's the thing, right? For us, we tend to see people's journeys as linear sort of no bumps in it journeys. And that's just almost never the truth. We see them as some steady linear process efforts and we see very, very little bumps from them. So let me, for everyone watching, I'm going to do like a quick linear sort of timeline of David's life leading up to where we're going to be. This will be like rapid fire sort of stuff. Well, first of all, he was privately prepared in the pasture. So he's alone dealing with sheep, thinking no one ever notices, asking God to promote him. And here's the thing, God promotes him and then the promotion doesn't look like what it's supposed to. If you follow David's story, he ends up in a cave with 400 people with issues. Sometimes people want to be promoted, but then when they get what they think they want, the promotion doesn't look exactly like what it's supposed to. Again, it takes us eight minutes to read over stories like David was in a cave of Agilum and 400 people who were discontented and in debt and distress all surrounded him and asked him to be their leader. It doesn't explain how it was 47 degrees in that cave with no running water or soap or air con or anything of any kind of comfort. It doesn't explain any of that. All it explains is, is David immediately said, I've got to get my mother out of this cave. And so he gets his mom and hides her with the king of Moab. Why? Because you can't have your mom in a cave with 400 men with issues. You can't do that. But again, it just reads over. It just kind of, it's four sentences. He, he was prepared privately in the pasture. Then he was anointed by Samuel. Like we, we talked about that in, in the first se- session. Then he served, he, he served the army and his brothers. The whole thing actually started, interestingly enough, with him bringing cheese, what, cheese, to his brothers. Like, how many people's journey, like, we think of David King, they got, yeah, no, no, cheese bringer. This guy started as a cheese bringer, serving others. Then he, of course, defeats Goliath, which we talked about. Then he wins battles and becomes a military hero. Evidently, David's anointing was not for ministry as we would think of it at all. all. His ministry was politics, fighting, um, 
songwriting. His, his anointing was something totally different. What, what he was not anointed for is hiding, right? Like he's killing lion bears and giant warriors, but every time he tries to hide, people know where he is and they find him there. This is, this is terrible. Like when you go to a cave and 400 people without the help of the internet all know where you're going and beat you to the cave they knew you were going to. Bro, when it comes to fighting, you're amazing. When it comes to hiding, frankly, you suck, right? That's this guy, right? He, he, he wins battles. He becomes best friends with Jonathan, Saul's son. Then he, be- oh, sorry. Then he becomes Saul's son-in-law. And, and then Saul tries to kill David in his own bed. These are stories, again, there are four sentences in the scripture. Oh, Saul, Saul tried to kill the guy in, in, in his own bed. Quickly, read. Like, like you just, but think, think about the emotions of that. Think about the distress, the psychology, the trauma, the lack of trust, the paranoia everywhere you would go. Saul tries to kill David in his own bed. He then tries a second time. David leaves an idol in the bed and got away. This is like, Ferris Bueller's day off, like, like it's the whole, like I'll trick my, like this is, again though, really, it's a real quick sort of, oh, Saul tries to kill David in his own bed, and David sort of knew, and so he hid an idol in the bed and snuck away through some back entrance, and again, this is not smooth at all. David then runs to a place called Naoth and, in Ramah and spends time with Samuel, and then Saul gets word that David's there, and sends three different platoons of soldiers. So three different sets of, what, 50 people to go get him. And then all the soldiers have an experience with God, including Saul. So you're kind of caught up with the story. David's hiding away. Somebody dobs him in on where they're hiding. Saul sends the military three different platoons after one guy, which is the one part of the story that makes complete sense because David, if anything, has proved himself pretty resourceful in fighting, right? So what if he doesn't want to come back? You got to send enough guys to get him. But then this is what happens. This is 1 Samuel um, 19. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. And, and word came back to Saul. David is in Naoth and Ramah, so he sent some men uh, to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. So all along in the Scripture, the people thought the anointing was only for a select few, but what you find all through Scripture is every now and then, God just surprises everybody and starts anointing people that shouldn't be technically anointed, kind of showing that God was like Jesus all along. I mean, the whole, the whole point of the scripture is that God is like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. That's the entire New Testament in one sentence. The whole New Testament is that Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality about God. He just simply showed you what God was always like from before the foundation of the world. People refused to see it that way until Jesus actually came and showed them. But you see little hints of this. Like, this isn't the only time this happened. There was this, there was this Syrian general named Naaman who had taken Israelite slaves to serve his house. How do we know that? Well, in the scripture, it says that when Naaman got leprosy, 
his Israelite slave girl said to him, hey, Ramon, your God does not heal leprosy, but the God of Israel does. Where does a general from Syria get an Israelite girl to be a slave in his house? Well, he obviously attacked a village in Israel and he kidnapped her. And yet in that story, the spirit of God eventually comes on Naaman, heals him, and this whole thing starts to shift. You see it in the New Testament as well. In Acts chapter 4, it says they were shocked that the Spirit of God had fallen on the uneducated and the normal people. Why would they be shocked when they weren't used to this? In this story, the enemy of God's man is being confronted with the kindness of God. It, again, it's always the kindness of God that should lead us to repentance, not God standing over us, demanding us to change so he can be nice. It's always a revelation of the kindness of God. This is the same, this is alluded to in Jesus's life. The military comes to Jesus. Jesus tells his own people, put your sword down. We're confronting their violence with kindness. In this story, God confronts their violence with kindness. This should teach us a lot about how we should confront people being violent toward us when they're speaking ill of you, when they're criticizing you. How do you handle that? You can either confront it with escalation or you can confront it with kindness. In this story, the first platoon of soldiers comes in and God says, I'll show you, I'll, I'll fall on you and give you the gift of my presence and let you prophesy as well. Now you would think that would change everything. It actually changed nothing. Watch what happened here. Saul was told about it, so he sent more men and they prophesied too. So Saul sent men a third time and they also prophesied. If you don't hear me say anything else tonight, sometimes, no matter what you do, they will not get it. And that is okay. What you see in this story, like the, 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 the mental hula hoops we go through of what could I say? What more could I do? What can I, hey, could, have I done everything I could do? Listen, sometimes God does everything he can do. And they're still not gonna get it. There were times Jesus did all he could do and they still didn't get it. We cannot treat even the Bible as some sort of magic formula creator, right? It's called genre confusion. Proverbs, as an example, Proverbs are not promises. They're proverbs. They're wisdom statements about how the world should work if wisdom is in operation in both people simultaneously. It's absolutely the best way to live, but it's not a promise. Proverbs 24, answer your enemy softly and their anger will turn from you. Is that a proverb? Yes. Is it a promise? No, Jesus answered his enemy softly and they killed him. And it wasn't because he didn't have enough faith in the word, right? Magic confronting Jesus. Jesus, if you'd have just had more faith in Proverbs 24, you'd have saved your own life. Come on. Proverbs aren't promises. They're proverbs. Sometimes you answer your enemy softly and their anger turns from you. And that's a good way to live. Sometimes you answer your enemy softly and they kill you. And it's not because you don't have enough faith in the word. It's because sometimes people kill you. There is no amount of stepping over people's will that sometimes work. In this story, and I don't want to belabor it, but in this story, three times, three platoons 
A Hebrew platoon should have been 50 people, okay? Three times, that's 150 people. Three different witnesses of 150 people prophesying in their own violence. Now, you would think that would change everything. It changed nothing. Watch what happened. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Siku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth, in Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth and Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth, and he stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence, and he lay naked. What a weird response. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say, is Saul also amongst the prophets? There are so many places we could go with this when you have men laying naked for 24 hours. There's a lot of places that we could go with this. And doubtless over 20 years, you've heard me go a lot of those places. And sometimes you've heard me go there in Afrikaans. But tonight... Ye moch your finger trick. <laughs> I want to point out that what happens in this story, it shows us that if you want to destroy your faith formation, let envy have its place. What this story shows us is that envy leads normally reasonable people to justify violence. Envy is a terrible thing because it's easy to hide. It's hard to admit. And what you find with envy is that normally reasonable people will justify doing harm when envy gets in there. Now, if someone's a jerk, they're just a jerk. But if you ever see someone who you think, man, that person is normally reasonable and you see that normally reasonable person justifying doing harm, you can know that envy has gotten in the middle of that person, because here's the problem with envy. Envy never delivers what it promises. Here's what happens with envy. Here's the promise of envy. If you hurt them, you'll get what you want. It's just never true. You see it with um, Hagar. She banishes, um, she banishes Ishmael, I mean, um, Sarah banishes Hagar into the wilderness. The idea was if I get rid of you, I'll be the most favored. No. No, you just banished a woman, a single mom into the wilderness. That's all you did. Joseph's brothers, they like, if we get rid of our brother, our dad will love us more. No, not true. You just made a man live in grief. It just doesn't work. Saul at this moment is believing, if I could just get rid of David, I'll get my popularity back. That's almost never true. When you martyr someone, it makes them more popular not less popular. The psychology of envy is so dangerous because here's what it says. It says, if I do harm to someone else, I'll get what I want all along. And envy never delivers what it promises. And it's incredibly compelling and powerful. Somewhere around here, there's a high school. Um, I, I, I drove by one, uh, the, the big kings, right, right across the, the street from over here, right? And at that school, in the high school arena, every year, there will be a fight. And it'll be something like this. Boy number one tries to beat up boy number two. 
And what is it always over? It's over a girl. Yeah, you've, you've lived this life, right? Yeah. Here, here's the way it works, right? Boy number one is dating said girl. Boy number two swoops in and steals said girl away, presumably with his six-pack of abs, okay? Remember, they're 16. Everybody has abs. I'm 47. No one has abs. No one. Your stomach muscles just let go and give up. That's what happens. At 47, bank accounts matter. At 16, abs. Now, boy number one is dating said girl. Boy number two swoops in with a six-pack of abs, and he's like, hey, come with me. So she does. Boy number one beats up boy number two, and what's his goal? Is his goal to beat up the boy? No. His goal is to re-win the affections of the? Yeah, is that going to work? Never. Never. You'll never meet a reasonable woman in your life that's like, you know what? I didn't love you, but now that you caused harm to that poor guy, I now, I am so in love again. Listen, if you beat up someone and that woman's affection is reacquired, listen, run from her. She's Looney Tunes, right? Right? But that's what, that's what envy does. Envy can, envy can convince a straight A student to potentially expose himself to expulsion from a top school because he thinks if he does harm, the girl will like him again. Never true. Envy is so hard to deal with. It blinds us to every possible empowering move of God. God is reaching out not once, not twice, three times, and even four times to him himself. But the envy has blinded him. I want to ask a few questions about this. In, in formation, the first thing that has to be refined off of us is our tendency to compare and be jealous of people who have something we think we want. Let's ask a few questions about this. Are, are we a jealous person? Is there anyone we hope secretly fails? Have we manipulated promoting someone for the purpose of watching them fail? And are we ignoring a move of God for ego's sake? These are questions that will stymie, it'll stun, it, it will stop the formation of faith process. And it's pretty simple. Why would God ever trust you with promotion if you're just going to hurt the people around you to promote yourself further? It just, that has to be dealt with. It's the ugly part of all of us until it's dealt with. This is that part in every single one of us that secretly would celebrate if someone who has more than us gets knocked down to size. In Australia, it's so widespread, they actually have a name for it. Tall poppy sin. Like, it's, it's that. And it takes all kinds of forms. It's, been, it's happened to every woman in this room. Listen, Every woman, men wouldn't probably remember this. They would remember for the other reason, but every woman in this room remembers their first day of year seven and you come back from year six, you had the summer break and in year six, everyone's a little girl and in year seven, everybody comes back and some are still little girls and some are not. 
And there's still, there's always that one girl who develops before everybody else. And you know who I'm talking about. I was talking about this one time and a lady in her mid-70s shouted, you're talking about Sally Moore. It was Sally Moore. She was the girl. She developed before all of us. And the girl that develops before everybody else is the most hated girl in the whole school by who? The girls. The boys love it. (laughs) Boys love it. But the girls, they hate her. Why? What has she done? Nothing. She just developed early. She went home before the summer as a well-liked little girl. She comes back after the summer as the most hated woman in the whole thing. And you're like, we hate her. We need her chopped down. And you know what? It sticks. It sticks. You run into her 30 years later, 30 years later, 30 years later, you run into her. You haven't seen her in 30 years. You run into her in Woolworths and she's pushing the cart and she's like a hundred pounds overweight and she's wearing sweatpants outside and she looks all unkempt, right? And everything in you goes, hi, Sally. Hi, how are you? But inside you're like, yes. (laughs) You peaked in high school. Oh yeah. This is ugly stuff. That if we don't deal with it, it stymies everything. In this story, I think if at any point Saul would have changed the way he was thinking and repented, I think Saul would have been fine. But in this story, what you find is as hard as God could go. How much more do you got to do than three different times and then a fourth? And the envy was still blinding him. If you want to really stymie your growth, don't deal with the envy. Look at other people's life and what they have. And what happens is, and this is particularly true because of social media, we fall in love with their fake life more than we appreciate our real one. And and that's because no one tells the, I don't want to bust anybody's bubble, no one tells the truth in public, okay? Not the whole truth. No way. No way. No one, you get a snippet. You get the picture. Hey, everybody, look at my new car. That's what you get. What you don't get is, hey, everybody, look at what I just did. I buy something I can't afford with money I don't have to impress people I don't like. I'm going to be broke for years because of this stupid decision. That's what you don't get. What you do get is look at my car. You don't get the mortgage payment. You just get the picture of the house. You do not get fight night. You always get pictures of date night. That's why you gag in your mouth. Hey, celebrating 10 years of my sugar plum, right? And everything in you is like, ah, why? Because we know you fight. We all know you fight. Quit posting date night unless you're going to post fight night alongside of it. This makes it very, very difficult. Um, let's, let's, moving along. Let's, let's say it this way. Do I see the bumps and the pain in my story as a normal part of the process? Here, sometimes people of faith, Here's my issue with it. I don't have a big issue with it, but here's a potential issue with it. Sometimes people of faith, instead of seeing the bumps and the pain as a necessary part of the process of becoming, we start thinking I'm facing the bumps and the pain because there's a problem with my faith. 
oftentimes there's no problem with your faith because faith is not a transactional formula to get God to control everything. That's called witchcraft. Faith is a profound trust in the middle of the process to know God is with us every single step of the way, right? So, so do we see the bumps and pain in my story as a part of the process? Number two, do I doubt God's faithfulness because it's not smooth? Like I must have a problem or God must have a problem or God must not be, when actually bumps are just a part of everybody's story. Um, do, number three, do I paralyze myself until I work it all out? Do I, you don't want to be 85, look back at your life and realize you didn't take enough risk because you wouldn't move until you figured it out. Faith formation gets stymied by envy, but it gets paralyzed by too much analysis and the expression of why instead of the expression of how. See, David an eight-minute read. Eight minutes. But I just wrote down a summary, kind of. He was born in Bethlehem. He was trained in Gibeah. In Elah, he had the battle with Goliath. In Jerusalem, he was promoted. There was a place called Naoth. He was chased. We just read about that. Then he went to a place called Nob, <laughs> where everybody eventually dies. Then he ends up in Gath. The only place that he found himself welcome was Gath. Now, why is that weird? Because who's from Gath? Yeah. So the only place that welcomed him was the hometown of the giant warrior he defeated. Maybe Goliath wasn't as popular as he thought. Maybe Goliath used his power, energy, resources, and fighting skill to oppress people instead of promote people, and his whole hometown was secretly glad somebody taught him a lesson. Sometimes the only way to deal with a bully is to whoop that bully. And then the hometown says, hey, you're hiding from everybody? You may as well stay with us. We'll protect you. Sometimes the people you would expect the least to be there for you are the ones that'll be there the most. And the ones who, if you're keeping score, kind of owes you the most are the ones who abandon you in your time of need. That's part of the process too. Then he's at Agilum. That's in a cave with 400 people. And everybody knew he was there. He knew he was in trouble. Then there was Kaliah where um, he saves the city from the Philistines. So he then saves this entire city from the Philistines again. And then there's Ziph. He has to run there because the people in Kaliah turned him in. So he saves the city with his military prowess only to have to run because the people he saved dobbed him in to Saul. Again, part of... Normal of, a normal part of everybody's process is the people you think would stand with you often are not the people who would stand with you. Then there's Gibeah. Again, he has to run there because the people he helped in Ziph turned him in. It's starting to make you think if David doesn't have a personality disorder where after a certain period of time, people just get sick of him or he's just experiencing what we all have experience. Then there's a place called Selah Hamelikoth, which is the rock of parting. That's where he has to separate from everybody. Then he's in Engedi, where he spares Saul's life. The guy trying to kill him, he spares him. And then he's back in Ziph, where David spares Saul again. And then he's back in Gath, Goliath's hometown. And then he ends up in Ziklag 
outside of Gath for 16 months. And when you read the story, there's all these little lines. And he waited there for eight months. And he stayed there for 13 months. And he resided there. And if you add it all up, it's like eight years. This is perspective. A lack of perspective is the enemy of hope. As soon as we think this will never change and no one else has ever suffered like this, we lose our hope. I'll spare you the details, but I had an experience recently that was quite moving. I was in a small group of people, and this one guy was really annoying me, like really annoying me. He was negative, critical, loud, you know, negative, critical, and loud, the trifecta (laughs) of annoying. And I just sat there quietly for a while and thinking, if I say nothing, he will shut up. But once I realized there was no hope of this person shutting up, I just said to him, I'm so sorry. Do you have a chemotherapy appointment today? He said, well, no. I said, I just want to make sure you don't have cancer. No, I don't. Right. And you woke up today in a country of paved roads and motor cars and stores that prepackage food for you, and clean water in your tap, and machines that do washing, and other machines that do drying, and world-class healthcare right down the road that you have access to? Is that your life? Yes. And you didn't wake up today in Burma or Sudan, which is under military rule, and you can't, no. And yet you're still this upset. How can someone whose life I just described be that, in my experience, People who lack perspective to the level you lack perspective will never be happy. Even if you got everything you thought you wanted, you'd never be happy. Well, there was a guy. When I get articulate like that, people listen for some reason. Because I don't do that often, but I was very articulate that day. The guy sitting right across said, who I'd never met, he's in his mid-20s. He said, you know, that's a good point. I'm having my leg cut off next week. I said, what? He said, no, he said, I I have a rare condition called charcoal foot. I'd never heard of that. Um, But it's a condition where the nerves in your feet don't know how to tell the muscles where the weight is. And so your ankle dislocates and your foot breaks anytime there's any weight. And and eventually the only answer is you have to cut the leg off at the knee. He went, by the way, he went through that uh, two Thursdays ago. Um, And I said, okay, see, here's the thing. No one can be upset until that guy's upset. If that guy can be here with a smile on his face, experiencing joy in the process, then all of us can. See, all of us ask the universal question, is anybody suffering as bad as mine? Like it's just a back, unless it's your back. And it's a really important back. It's just a neck, unless it's your neck. It's a pretty important neck. It's just an issue with the teenager, unless it's your teenager. And if it's your teenager, it's a pretty important teenager. But, of course, if you have issues with a teenager, how many opinions on the earth go around about what you should do about your teenager? And then you're like, man, what is going on? This story teaches us that this story is all of our stories. And all of our stories. See, what takes us eight minutes to read took David eight years to live. Here's my question for us tonight is this. Can we identify with this story? Eight years of no fruit, 
of spinning our wheels, of not knowing when it would all be okay. Eight years of medical bills and tests and not knowing the outcome. Eight years of financial stress. Eight years of relational circles that destroy and destroy and destroy only to come back again to the same exact pattern. What seems to be shown in this story is that God seems to be less concerned with success and more concerned with character development. Seven times in the story, Saul tries to kill David. Have we ever been disappointed or betrayed from their response? See, part of our refining is saying yes to the anointing. It's living intentionally and repenting along the way. It's being willing to to do in private what we need to do in public. It's living intentionally instead of by accident. But it's also realizing that for nobody is your life formation going to be smooth. It's just not anyone's story. And the first thing that has to go is envy, jealousy, and comparison against people. We think their journey is smooth, but if we actually knew it, we would know it is not. Envy and jealousy kills the formation, also freezing the present, thinking this will never go anywhere. That kills it. And it's just in us all to freeze the present. It's, just, it's a psychological phenomenon. Heck, even if we get a bad enough cold, we're thinking, I'll never breathe again. <laughs> That's me done. My breathing days are over, right? But we all know this is true of anything. Colds, heartbreak, right? Remember your first breakup? Of course you do. Everybody remembers their first breakup. I remember my first breakup, right? And it was mutual, right? And don't you think anything different than that? We got together and we mutually decided it wasn't working. That's what happened, right? The problem was she seemed fine. I was like devastated. I was like so devastated. I was like, I was pouting. I was doing all the things to rewin her affection, like pouting and look desperate. It worked terrible, you know? Dad picks me up from school. He's like, what's the matter with you, buddy? I'm like, nothing. If you've ever raised a teenager, you've had that one. Nothing. My dad always had a way with words. He's like, nothing really, then tell your face that. Because I can't see your heart, but if your face is any indication of what's going on in your heart, then, then there's something going on. And if there's not, that means your face is broken. Then then you'd have to fix your flipping face. You know? Shoot. Went home, I'm still pouting. An hour later, Dad's had enough, you know. He's like, hey, you gonna tell me or not? I was like, Dad, she broke up with me. It was mutual. I hurt so bad. I'll never love again. There'll never be anybody. I was 14. My dad went, my dad just is so, ex-special forces in Vietnam, you know. My dad said, boy, are you crying over a girl? I'm like, yeah, dad, my heart hurts, you know. He said, I'll be right back. He came back with a small potted plant, little sprig, you know, like that. I've always been a pretty good communicator. I could see where this was going, you know. New life, fresh starts, life bursting forth from death. New life coming out of the ground. I could see where this was going. Nope. My dad's lesson for my life that day was, if you're going to cry over a girl, at least cry in the plant so your tears will do something. God, you're embarrassing. And you know he was right. Three weeks later, new girl, whatever, forget her, next. Envy, 
and freezing the present stymies this thing that's just a normal, nor the belief that we have a faith problem. You normally don't have a faith problem. Faith is not a formula to get God to control everything. Faith is a profound trust in the middle of that something that God is at work in all things. I want to end tonight with this observation. What this story teaches us is who we are and who we aren't and most importantly, who we no longer have to be. And part of that is David ends up in a place called Midbar. Midbar is where David finally gets clarity about how to move forward. And it's a play on words. Midbar is a desert, by the way. Uh, When I went to Israel, the tour guide took me to Midbar. It was a very long ride to the middle of nowhere. And if he wanted to kill me and leave me there, no one would have ever found me. To this day, I was out there by myself with him, with no cell service, no nothing, no anything. And he asked me for my wallet, and I gave it to him. Because what other hope did I have? And he said, who are you out here without this? Out here, this means nothing. Who are you out here is where you can be profoundly clear about what God has on your life. It's a play on words. The word midbar is desert, but it shares the root word, dabar, which is word. The way Hebrew works is you have three-letter roots, dabar, word. If you put an M in front of it, you get midbar. That's a desert. An M in ancient Hebrew imagery is violent water. It's chaos. In other words, sometimes you get the clearest word in the solitude of a chaotic situation that you have no idea where to go next. In Genesis 1, it was the Tehom, the chaotic water. In Jonah's story, it was the Tehom, the chaos. In this story, it was Midbar. And in Jesus' story, it was Midbar. Sometimes, in the bump and the suffering and the pain, that's actually where we get the most clarity because sometimes you just have to experience enough pain to have had enough and change it. That today's word is not necessarily tomorrow's. And how it's always been isn't necessarily how it will always be. That is a word for a lot of us here tonight and a lot of people watching. How it always has been is not necessarily how it will always be. Now, great sermons are meant to be questioned and thought about, wrestled with. Here's a few questions for us. Have I been paralyzed by analysis of nonlinear journey? Have I just stopped acting because I can't figure it all out? Number two, is envy of the move of God on them blinding me to the move of God on me? Am I paying more attention to what God's doing with them instead of me? God has a plan for you, and it might include them, but his plan is you. Can I name something painful from years ago that I now see as part of the process? In the middle of it, you think it'll never end. It's all blinding and sorry, but it's actually a part of the process. What do I need to name today and put into the same category? It's happened before. Hey, wait, that was just part of the, how it's always been. Isn't necessarily how it will always be. That's seeing the world through resurrection. Where has their response or lack of it done us damage? Who do I no longer need to be? All of us have crossed that line where we felt the freedom of no longer having to be what they want us 
to be, and it felt like Midbar. But when we get to the other side of it, it's like, how did I ever live another way? Most people don't start experiencing that till they're in their late 40s and 50s just because we care too much earlier. What word did I get in Midbar? When you think back through your life, what clarity did you get in Midbar? So in this series, we've talked about anointing, intention, repentance, equipping, preparing, and now refining. I, I can't wait to tomorrow night where we'll take the last part of the journey. And we'll talk about what it looks like to be appointed. I hope Jesus got bigger for you. The cross worked better. The resurrection is central. Scriptures got bigger, not smaller. If you're willing to pray these two prayers, I invite you to pray them with me. Lord Jesus, may no one ever reject you because of how I'm presenting you. Second prayer, Holy Spirit, would you speak to my heart about where envy, jealousy, and comparison has stopped my journey and set me free from it? Holy Spirit, would you grace me with a profound trust that you're present in the middle of it instead of trying to control it? Amen. Thank you so much for being a part of your night. And for everybody watching online, thank you so much for being a part of your night. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless. Thank you for listening to another anointed message. If this message has impacted your life, please let us know. Go to our website at www.flbchurch.org and send us a praise report. Also, don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, as well as subscribe to our podcast or YouTube channels. God bless. Remember, you were born to overcome.